As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Be the best and you got to pay a little price. If you want it bad enough, you got to do a little extra things to get it. Welcome to the 11 Personnel Podcast, your favorite Rams podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Rodriguez, and with me, as always, my imaginary friend, Rich Hammond. Just kidding. Guys, I'm solo today. Um, first and foremost, fabulous, fabulous 11 Personnel listeners. How we doing? Hopefully, everyone's doing great. Uh, hopefully, everyone's singing into the new year in, in positive fashion, and friends are doing well, family are doing well. Um, hopefully you guys are taking care of yourselves and each other. And I know it's been a couple weeks since I've last spoken with you, myself and Rich Hammond. Um, we're on the last episode kind of recapping the Rams season. Um, you're marking a couple of big decisions ahead. Since that time, I have been back and forth to the senior bowl in Mobile, Alabama. Really excited to share more with you on that when the time comes. Um, in the meantime, check out an article I wrote. I spoke with a bunch of um, NFL scouts from various teams and then also from or with uh, people who create the zebra tracking technology software. They were very insightful on how teams use GPS. In their case, it's RFID. So um, more it, it's more accurate. It's accurate within six inches versus GPS, which is like 36 to 39 inches of accuracy. Um, it is this hyper accurate and getting more and more accurate by the year, I believe, um, technology that they use to track player movement during drills and practices, um, really, really helpful, particularly with the skill players on either side of the ball. So um, this was really fascinating to get a better understanding of how teams utilize that data um, and disseminate it. There's a, a huge variance between how deep in the weeds teams go into this type of data versus teams who either don't use it or simply use it for speed metrics. Um, but I think the consensus is clear. It's it's a really useful tool and something that's only growing and, and getting more interesting as, as the years pass and as technology improves. So go check that out over at theathletic.com. Um, we'll have a lot of draft uh, interviews here through the spring. Dane Brugler, if we can um, peel him out of the cave where he is trapped finishing the Beast draft draft book that I know a lot of you guys love and use. And Dane, it's absolutely epic and the best in the game at draft profiles. I'm hoping to have a couple more friends on to talk about the draft. Um, but in the meantime, we're kind of in that gray area between the end of the season and obviously watching other teams play in the Super Bowl and the Rams sort of pining and yearning to get back there themselves. And before the combine, now the combine, whether or not your team goes, is a really important place to go and gather intel on what free agency is going to look like. As you guys remember, I generally have a little bit of an outline or um, blueprint using some sourced information on what the Rams offseason might potentially look like. Um, last year was a little bit more straightforward than I think this year will be. Um, last year, uh, team and league sources basically were like, hey, here's what's going to happen. Um, and then it all happened. <laughs> and you guys remember some of the very public comments people like Kevin Demoff, Les Sneed, Sean McVay after a certain point made 
um, about discipline and, uh, you know, kind of my words, not theirs, but sort of sacrificing the defense for the sake of the offense and for those three big contracts on the roster, the weight bearing walls and Sean McVay um, rediscovering himself in a really powerful way as a coach. And um, basically all these things that they said they were going to do, they actually went and did those things. But this this year, it's it's going to be a little bit more gray. And I think that's fitting um, because they'll have more resources, but that does not necessarily mean that they're going to um, kind of like person, I guess it's a right, it's the correct metaphor, like person coming out of dry January, they're not just going to go nuts. Like one of my agent friends that I ran into at the at the senior bowl was telling me um, that they were doing a dry January, but their, their uh, exodus from dry January was leading them straight to Las Vegas for Super Bowl weeks. So I was like, Oh, be careful, man. <laughs> like, please take care of yourself. No judgment at all. Just, you know, that's a that's both ends of the extreme there. So um, I don't foresee the Rams operating in free agency like that. I see them um, being continuing to be intentional, disciplined in some ways, kind of similar to how they were pre-2021 in in some ways, where it was very intentional trades and um it was it was still you know waiting out necessarily the the big first waves of free agency but making impactful moves um in the second and third waves this this last year i would say they were more like fourth fifth waves <laughs> in terms of their spending limitations but so i i wouldn't necessarily think they're going to go out and go crazy with this with this money um now that they're exiting uh dry 2022 um but i do think that that you're going to see some some points of extreme interest um, just like every off season with this team, I'm expecting a little bit of mad chaos. Um, I'm expecting a, a little bit of crazy. I'm expecting, uh, some things will pop up that we're not expecting. So, so in many ways, other than the outside reaction, I think to the way that the Rams approached their 2023 roster, um, and, and excuse me, when I say dry 2020, dry 2023, I think 2022 just like fell off the map in terms of our estimation in our heads, but I keep getting my years mixed up because it is now 2024. But, um, I, I think that this is going to be interesting. I, I still expect the unexpected with this team always. Um, but I do think that relative to normal, they, they did sort of lay out this very transparent blueprint in 2023, I don't know that we'll necessarily have that transparency into 2024 because it's pretty. It was pretty obvious what they were going to have to do in 2023 to fix their cap and to kind of get their roster reset going and a sprint rebuild that I think we're trying to pitch to less need to call it. Um, 2024 is going to be a little bit more interesting. They do have the resources, so they're going to need to hide some of their directional movement. And that also includes the draft where they're going to have a first round pick. They're going to need to hide some of that directional movement, um, just by nature of, of the competitive business. Right. And the fact that they do have resources to use. So buckle in, um, as usual, I always feel like I say that to you this time of year. Um, and in the meantime, uh, I guess you're listening to me solo, which, you know, just makes me feel like nails grading on a chalkboard. Some of you are very kind in saying, no, don't be so hard on yourself to me um, in the comments and uh, in my emails. But uh, trust me, this is no less painful for me to do solo. But I really appreciate you guys, as always, being thoughtful and kind. And you guys asked a lot of really, really great questions. Um, so I'm going to get to those, but I'm going to do it a little bit differently instead of kind of going person by person. I did get a lot of similarly themed questions and I did get a lot of, um, there's a lot of common threads of interest and rightfully so for this team. So I'm going to try to touch on a few different themes of questions. Um, and hopefully that casts a wider net and makes people feel like they're included and maybe not left out of the question asking and the question answering. Um, and thank you as always, guys, for those questions. I think it's just, it, it, it's really amazing to see how thoughtful everybody is and kind of what everyone cares about and wants to know about. And then the way that you guys frame the questions are, um, it, it's deeper, it's deeper than average. And, and I just appreciate that. And it's always fun to answer. So without further ado, um, okay. So one of the questions I got was sort of a general how does the front office divide position investments? Are there different pools of money per position? Um, how do they sort of assess who is going to get higher investments versus lower investments? 
Um, and so that's a, that's a great question. I think, so every team does this differently. Every team has positions that they consider to be premier versus low cost, low investment. And a lot of the low cost, low investment, it's, it's not a knock. It more so means investment via later rounds of the draft, dependent on draft and develop positions that don't necessarily have a huge impact in the win-loss, uh, how, how teams assess those deeper analytics of win probabilities and um, what that position is specifically adding to the scheme, what that how that position is affecting the scheme and overall production. Um, so for the Rams, their premier positions are, of course, quarterback, which that is every team. Um, and if it's not, uh, you might not want to be in the NFL or football in general. Um, but for every team, uh, quarterback, um, for the Rams, it is quarterback, cornerback, pass rusher, as we know, the Aaron Donald factor being an outlier where an interior defensive lineman is getting a premier player treatment and investment, um, versus, uh, interior D linemen that are more run stuffers or certain nose tackles. Um, Aaron Donald, his effect as a pass rusher is, um, specifically that puts him into this um, category here. Obviously, the fact that he's the best player on the planet helps <laughs> with that as well. Um, and so that that's inclusive to outside linebacker, of course, or edge rusher. Um, sometimes wide receiver, probably not this year. Um, there was a homegrown outlier. His name is Cooper Cup. I know you guys are very familiar with this, with the story at this point. Um, he did get the big contract extension from them, but that's not usually something. And, and Robert Woods got a contract extension as well. Um, but that position is not usually one that they will necessarily invest in um, as a premier position, if if especially if not homegrown. Um, the Allen Robinson signing was an outlier for them and bad process on their part, which they're pretty open about. And so that's not something if they're in their process the way they should be and intentional about that, um, and their method and their evaluations and their team building and all of the things that they are fundamentals for them. Um, I don't think that that's an avenue that they'll again, take, um, and I would say now you're also looking at offensive linemen, Rob Havenstein and a homegrown player, you're looking at how much can you invest along that line at this point? Um, Kevin Dotson being a huge question mark here. And that kind of segues me into another question uh, that I got, which would was, can they extend Kevin Dotson? The answer is yes, um, they can. I don't know if they will. That's just the reality of it. I think that Les Snead earlier last month was pretty open about the duality of the situation, which is... He will have a market and there's going to be a mark, a high mark at some point that the Rams will not cross. Um, he will have a competitive market at the same time. Multiple things being true, guys. Um, I believe that he is a player they should try their best to resign in a perfect world. They would resign him. I just don't know that they can. Regardless, they're going to have to invest and keep investing in this offensive line. I wrote in a column earlier, uh, today is Tuesday, it published this morning about looking at their upcoming free agents. Um, around the end of February, they're going to have more direction in terms of a, either how much money, extra money they'll have to invest in a potential Dotson extension slash what they will need to redirect out of their full pool of salary into figuring out the center position is that going to come in free agency? Is that going to be the draft? Because Coleman Shelton has a decision to make in whether he he will void the final year of his contract or not. Um, my understanding is he stands to make about $2.75 million as a base salary in 2024 with a couple million more of, of incentives if he decides he wants to try free agency, if he thinks he can get more money in free agency. He has the autonomy to void the final year in his current contract. Then he would become a free agent. The Rams at that point would would then get back the two point seven five million. Again, you're looking at incentives not being factored into the cap here. Um, so you're looking at maybe close to like three million that they would get back. You could redivert that elsewhere, but I don't know that that's going to hugely move a needle in a long term Dotson extension. So just to keep 
you know, I know people don't want to hear this, but just to sort of keep the logic in all of it. Yes, they want to extend Kevin Dotson. Yes, they will be communicating with his agent. Yes, other teams will also be communicating with Dotson and his agent. Um, yes, Kevin Dotson has the right and and should uh, do what's right for himself, his family, get what he can. This is a Rob Havenstein sentiment he also shared at the end of um, the regular season when he spoke with media. Um, you know, you want players to do right by themselves with how much they're putting their bodies through. At the same time, um, there's going to be a high watermark that the Rams won't cross, and it will be reflective of not just their 2024 budget, but a multi-year budget that's sort of staked out across like multiple Excel spreadsheets that are stored inside the AI program, also known as Tony Pastors. So, <laughs> um, you know, we'll just kind of see how it plays out. There's also a question I got that's more specific. So I want to address it here. Someone, it's a good question. So I do want to address it. Someone asked why that, why don't they just tag him? So the tag for O-linemen this year, it, it's going to be over like 18 and a half million. It might be close to 20 million in 2024. And that's for one year. Whereas if you sign a player to a multi-year deal, you can spread out that money over a series of years and, and obviously help with your cap short and long-term. So that average per year, not only is that more than he will probably make on a competitive market, um, but it also really financially limits the team and the Rams don't use the cap, or, excuse me, they don't use the tag in general. I know I said the Rams don't use the cap because that's sure what it seemed like for a couple of years, but then 2022 came. Um, and then in general, just kind of following up with that initial question, um, they also will save back about 10 million and they say it's for draft picks. I hear this every year. I'm just going to go over it again. I'm not stupid. Some days I'm stupid. On this, I'm not stupid. I know that you don't need $10 million for your draft picks. The way that the salary cap is tiered and the draft rounds are tiered and the contracts are structured now, you definitely do not need a hard $10 million to sign your draft picks. They, I, I'm I'm not saying it because I like that fun little round number. They save this. I know they I've been told this as a reporter, like by someone I trust in that building who would know that they they do save this and they try to do so annually. And it's not just for their draft picks. It's also because a lot of funding and monies are moving and and changing at the same time around the same time of year. And so you you kind of overestimate a little bit of your draft picks. This is my understanding of the situation. If you're over, if you're overestimating what you're going to need for your draft picks, again, also knowing that you've got a GM that is just like trade happy in the draft and you're going to need like, okay, like, like for example, you trade back and you have X more number of picks. Okay. That's still money that you need to make sure you can pay them that you have in the bank. That's not being owed on other contracts that you already have sort of as a buffer, right? And then, like, let's say, so, like, last two years ago, they traded for Troy Hill in the middle of the draft. So stuff like that, you need to pay him, right? You need to, uh, they've got two more third-round picks this year, or, what, excuse me, one more third-round pick this year. You need to pay that per, that player. Um, you're, you have to sort of have a buffer in this same pool, understanding that it's not just the draft that's happening around the location of this pool of funding. It's also... Uh, veterans that you pick up right after cuts, right after the draft. It's also uh, a buffer for some things that could come up right after the draft or during or right before the draft. Um, it's so that you don't have to make some sort of emergency money cut, money-related cut or negotiation or restructure or something that's like an outlier to your plan to make up for the fact that you've overspent out of your draft pool out of some sort of outlier situation. And you absolutely, of course, need to make sure that those draft picks get signed and their bonuses are taken care of and you have a slush fund for the UDFA pool and all of these things that are happening behind the scenes. I know that sounds crazy. 10 million, you don't need that for your draft picks based on the contract structures. I I'm just explaining. <laughs> this is, it's not my plan. This is what I've been told. Um, and frankly, when you lay it out in terms of it being fluid money and, and lots of things that come up and that you have to plan for in the short term, the past tense and the present all at the same time, it, it does make sense to me. Um, but also my brain is a weird place. So if that didn't make sense to you guys, please follow up with me and I will follow up again and I will just keep following up and keep following up and the cycle will continue over and over. 
for eternity, um, even into uh, whatever version of the afterlife all of us are going into. So see you guys there. Um, <laughs> so the number of their cat, their cat number, it realistically looks sort of fluid. So it's like between 30 to 45 million in workable money. And, and the, the high end of that is dependent on any potential restructures. Um, I'll get to that question in a minute. The low end of that is dependent on any potential moves, um, the draft picks. If you do max out that money, it's kind of like you you can't just look at the number as a sequential thing. You have to look at it as this sort of ever-moving target that spans space and time, <laughs> right? Isn't that fun? Um, I could not do that job, by the way. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Okay, so on that point on restructuring, I got a lot of questions about this. Are there ways you can create more cap space? What makes sense for restructures? Um, you can always restructure anything. If you had a vet minimum contract, if you really wanted to open that thing up, you could. Um, you obviously cannot restructure. You cannot restructure high dollar deals unless there is some sort of specific clause in the contract that says you can't. Um, a lot of what the Rams have done in recent years is this thing called an auto restructure, which means that they don't have to ask the player for permission to restructure. They can just do it. That was what the Woods contract was and the Cup contract was a couple of years ago. Um, there are only really three contracts currently that they can open up at the top of their roster for anything significant. That's obviously Matthew Stafford, Aaron Donald, and Cooper Cup. Those were the three big contracts that they agreed to after the Super Bowl. Those remain the three big contracts. Rob Havenstein and Tyler Higby's contracts are up there a little bit. Um, kind of hard to do that for an injured player. You just kind of, I think you would talk through that at that point in terms of uh, Tyler Higby. Um, both of those guys, Rob Havenstein and Tyler Higby, you could open a little bit up um, out of those. Um, but you're also thinking about what you'd owe that player in the future. Um, in all five of the contracts I just mentioned, you're looking at how what the duration is. Go to over the cap and look at the duration. It's 2024 and 2025 for, for a lot of those. Um, they don't run much longer, so you're running out of space in which to push that money at a certain point, and it's money you will owe. Um, so it, it just you have to be careful with how you restructure the Rams. It's it's not something they um necessarily like to do. They have done it. But, um, yeah, it's always kind of that, that calculation and that equation that you're balancing again, that transcends space and time. <laughs> so, um, I'm making myself laugh and, um, you guys are all groaning because I sound like a moron. Um, okay. So, um, cuts also can open up money. So like post June first cuts, as far as I understand it, and if anyone with the Rams listens to this podcast and I'm wrong about this, please reach out to me so I can correct it on a future episode. Um, post June 1st, it, it's not like you can cut someone in, uh, what, February and say this will be a post June 1st cut or like March and say this will be a post June 1st cut. You can designate them. I don't know. I don't know whether you get your money opened back up until then, um, or if you get it right in that moment. So I, I do need clarity on that. My understanding for most teams and not specifically talking Rams here, but most teams think about post-June first cut money as something that helps them into the year and not necessarily helps them on their spring or free agency in March spreadsheet. So, um, again, it's sort of like thinking future tense with a past tense move. 
Um, I'd have to have clarity, more clarity from the Rams on that. Um, and hey, at league meetings, we'll get our annual meeting with the AI program known as Tony Pasteur. So maybe we'll get some clarity on that front. Um, another general question I got, and I'm taking a breath, I swear. It sounds like I'm just speaking manically, but you guys can tell I get really nervous doing these <laughs> solo ones. I need I need a, a Rich Hammond is my crutch here. <laughs> Um, Stu Jackson, uh, although I'm trying to give Stu like a little bit of a break. He's had a really, uh, he's worked really hard this year and, and helped me out with these. So I'm trying to give him a little bit of a breather, but, um, uh, another question I got, uh, was obviously, you know, what are the clear roster holes? What is your opinion of team needs? You guys know anyone who listens to this show, anyone who follows me on Twitter, anyone who follows me on threads, anyone who reads the athletic, um, pass rush, uh, specifically edge. I love, love, love the tandem of Aaron Donald and Kobe Turner. I love that Kobe Turner developed, um, just so well this year and became a real force in the interior. Um, they need a pass rusher. This defense will always any most defenses, but especially a defense where it's not just that the defensive coordinators didn't blitz a lot in the scheme. The head coach does not blitz. The head coach does not have a blitz heavy philosophy, um, and so you're just, you're gonna need to rush with four. You just are. And, and that's fine. Every defense will probably work very effectively, particularly in the past coverage. If you can effectively rush with four, I think that's great. Um, but they need another pass rusher. I think you got the most you possibly could out of a very, very limited, defense and and I think the emergence of in 20 I mean in 2023 and I think the emergence of Byron Young is outstanding obviously Kobe Turner is outstanding you know you 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 see that Michael Hoyt did his best I think that um that schematically there's some big question marks about um how effective other teams could sort of isolate against him and kind of have that counter to um, to, to scheme around him or they would, uh, extrapolate, you know, on, or they, excuse me, not extrapolate. They would exploit certain calls that they, you know, that are Fangio based calls, which is the one that people get m the most angry about on social media, which is when suddenly you see a tight end running down the field and the closest defender is Michael Hoyt. Like I've explained before in this podcast, he's not supposed to be there. <laughs> Something else was was supposed to have worked or happened so that he's not in that position um, at the line of scrimmage, sure, to, to bump a guy off his route or to be physical or if it's a RPO or a run play in the case that he has to play the run. So all of those things make sense. But when it's all the way downfield, he is not supposed to be down there. It It is not great to see him down there. I think we can all agree on that. Um, at the same time, I think he's still got potential, um, as a situational player. It's just that he was an every down rusher because out of necessity, because they were developing young players and also being disciplined financially. This is all stuff we've talked about before guys. I would fully, if they are not investing in an edge rusher this, this year, someone who can come in and immediately upgrade the entirety of the rush. Not just one side, not just the interior, the entire complementary rush, which had issues all year, no matter who broke out or who was dominating on the inside. Um, they were an inconsistent, complete rush, which means that, um, you know, the transitive rush or the transition rush, it was not it was not effective. The first punch would work. The, the second punch would would not work or the first punch would fail and the ripple effect would affect the second punch. Um, you, you need to have a really solid transition rush, a one-two punch where you're getting initial penetration and then something else is happening, right? If the quarterback is flushed out to the, to the edge, the second that side is shaking its block and, and shedding its, sh excuse me, shedding its block in order to contain and affect the quarterback and move him, continue to move him off his spot. Um, if the quarterback can, can move, those players are containing him and, 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 um, and like sort of flurrying to him so that his either a throw is affected or they can bring him down or push him out of bounds. 
Um, if the quarterback is a pocket passer, if the edge rush goes is gets up and around the back of the pocket, there needs to be something in the interior happening as the transition rush. It's it just the 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 second half of it was just so inconsistent all year. Um, I think whereas you saw sometimes the corners covering a lot and re- for a really long time this year, which was it's a hard thing to ask, especially as limited at corner as they were for them to cover that long, um, an edge would just help everything. It would just help everything. And the second part of that is I do think they need to to improve their cornerback situation. They may lose Akella Witherspoon in free agency. Um, that's going to be tough, uh, not, be- not just because he was a veteran presence for a young group, but also because around him, I just didn't see enough from those young guys that they were so excited about in 2022. Um, when they really, you know, went went for that position in the draft, I just didn't see enough consistency from them. There were some injury questions. Um, there's some penalty questions. There's just a lot of different things that you just need to see more. And the size, the size is important too. I mean, I I'm not somebody. If a player can play, he can play, right? But at a certain point, you are gonna need a corner, two corners who are over six feet tall, who can hang with some of these really solid receivers in the NFC West, let alone the rest of the league. Um, You need guys who can hang, right? And so I think that this is going to be important to reinvest sort of on the fly in this position, even though they just did two years ago in the draft. It's okay to pivot away from players who just maybe are struggling to take that third step in development. We'll have to see in this in the spring, right? And then they're going to have a lot of tape to go over. But one thing about the amount of picks that they have this year is I do think that that's a position you can, again, invest heavily in promising and, and maybe higher round players in the draft. Um, at, that's a position that could could potentially have a high hit rate um, and, and I think like, you know, they, they've done it in the past. And, and so I think if you're going to say like, oh, pay it, what's the pay versus draft going back to the first, the first question that I got, this is just my opinion. I don't run the team. I don't run a team. Um, I, uh, I, I can barely run my own life, <laughs> but, um, what I would probably do is I would say another cheap veteran corner um, good to have one in the room. Good to have a guy who either can have a high, pro- a best case scenario like Akello did, um, or in a worst case scenario, can be great in the room, uh, show guys how to practice, can be stable, consistent, can be good depth, can help on special teams. Um, and, and you draft there and you draft really explosive traits. You draft good cover corners. They're probably, I would imagine going to stay a lot of times in a zone. It's just a zone league guys. You can be as mad about that as you want, but it just is, um, the Rams mixed up a lot of their different, uh, half field and quarter field coverages this year. So, um, they, Akello was pressed tighter than you generally have seen in the past two years from, from a Rams corner. Um, but at the same time, you need a guy who can be, Scheme versatile. You need guys who um, can can be receiver versatile. Um, guys who can play on the outside. They do like guys who can also play on the inside. You know, but I wouldn't say there's harm because they're now playing their star and their nickel differently. Um, kind of back to what they were going to do. What they were doing in 2020 was the method they picked in 2023. And we don't know what Krishula will do, but it, it kind of makes sense that they continue to do it that way. Um, versus playing that Ramsey star. Um, you can afford to find trait-heavy guys for outside corner positions, which means you, you're you probably going to get more length. Um, and, and so that's a good thing, in my opinion. Um, you, you want that explosiveness. And, and so if you're going to do that in the draft, and again, this is just what my off-the-cuff strategy would be, um, then you go out and you try to pay an a, a edge defender. Um, if you're going to potentially think about the entire board of free agency plus the draft. To me, it's never a bad thing to continue investing in offensive linemen with higher picks in the draft and skill players with higher picks in the draft. Um, and then and then you're looking at uh, corners at a certain point. And then I think that that kind of naturally allocates your funds to paying a veteran edge rusher. I'm not saying an old veteran. Um, I, I think their sweet spot if we look at history and we look at kind of what's been successful for them is 
second contract guys, guys right entering their a year in their second contract, right entering, which would be a trade, entering their second contract, surprise cuts, um, guys who, uh, you know, there's tag and trade candidates, things like that. Um, I, I just think, you know, you, you've really got to prioritize those two positions on your defense, in my opinion. And I think you can fill around them in other ways. Um, offensive line, as I've noted to me is always a need, but I think especially not knowing yet how the Kevin Dotson, Coleman Shelton situations will play out. Rob Havenstein played really well last year, but is getting older. Um, you need to, to figure out kind of the contingency plan, what comes next at a certain point. Um, you, Alaric Jackson is a restricted free agent, so you need to figure out whether you're going to tender him or um, if you're going to kind of go look elsewhere at that position. Um, I always think that supplementing running back and receiver in the draft is smart, and this kind of popped up as a need more so than I think the Rams were expecting because they gave Tyler Higbee a contract in season. Well, he's going to be recovering from an MCL and an ACL. So I think you're also probably going to have to look in the draft for a tight end too. Um, and, and it's just, it's one of those things where maybe you weren't expecting it to be as high of a need. You were sort of celebrating a little bit, in fact, because Davis Allen really reemerged or excuse me, really emerged as a rookie. But then you lost Hunter Long, who is not reliable injury-wise anyway. And then you also... Um, have lost Tyler Higby. And I think one of the crucial elements of this position moving into 2024 is the fact that they were able to retain Nick Cayley, um, who was in a really good position with the New England Patriots um, during the interview process for their offensive coordinator job. Um, but the Rams are able to retain him. So <clears throat> this is going to be significant in terms of figuring that position out. That will be really important um, entering 2024, especially with a sudden change of plans, um, unfortunately for Tyler, um, with the, with the, the double knee injury from that very low hit, um, by lion safety, Kirby Joseph also included in needs uh, that if you guys know me and listen to me, read me, you know, is always in the front of mind for me. They need to figure out their kicker situation. I talked about that in my column over the athletic, give that a read. Um, and then obviously they're going to need to figure out their backup quarterback situation without certainty that Stetson Bennett will be back and without certainty that Carson Wentz will be back because logically speaking, a player who is a former first round pick and who is going to, um, you know, a top five pick who has started in significant games, who has led teams, um, who kind of fell on, personal harder times and and tough times for a skill set and um you know then kind of was waiting in the wings with the Rams and played really well in week eight, 18 against the 49ers like of course he's going to want to try to like Baker Mayfield this whole situation into a shot with another team so that would be logical for me I haven't talked to Carson since the end of the season so I can't say definitively that that's what he wants um but it sure felt like he was very antsy to get back out there um as a starter in a game so um I have no reason to believe he won't at least try his luck with other teams in which case you need to once again figure out your backup quarterback situation and one question that I've gotten uh, as I sort of hunch in my seat, just expecting tomatoes to come flying, um, is a lot of questions, actually. So I'm going to generalize here. A lot of mock drafts this time of year are projecting the Rams to take a quarterback in the first round um, with that with that uh, top 20 pick that they have as of now, as they always like to joke about. Um, and and there's a lot of mixed opinions on this, and I and I totally understand the mixed opinions. The Rams are obviously committed to Matthew Stafford. Matthew Stafford was a bona fide badass in 2023, uh, a healthy Matthew Stafford. There's no reason to believe he won't be a bona fide badass in 2024, caveat if he can stay healthy. Um, but I can see why people are projecting this. Um, they look at Stafford's age. They look at his injury history. They look at the short term and the long term of the position and that the Rams with or without Stafford are back on a positive trajectory. Yes, he was a huge reason for that positive trajectory in 2023, but they've got their feet back under them. They're, resource, they're more resource rich at this point. 
Um, so I can see why people would think, oh, is it time for the Rams to start thinking about what comes next? Could they draft a guy and stash him for a year or two and develop him? Um, I, I do think that I think it's a very real, the McVeigh question and all of this, I think that's a very real, real and valid question to ask. Um, would he want to develop a guy from the ground up? Would he want somebody older? Um, kind of the, I, I can see why the, he, this is being projected because the happy medium of that is a guy gets drafted and then he waits and other people work with him because that's what the quarterbacks coaches do. Um, although McVay did lose his quarterbacks coach this spring, Zach Robinson, um, to the OC job in Atlanta. So that these are all factors and variables to fact to work into the equation. I, I can I I guess what I'm trying to say is I can see why people are projecting it. The logic of the why to me um makes sense. But personally, I'm talking about me, myself, Jordan, who does not run a team, who barely runs her own life well. Um, I would wait. Um, I think that this is a really great offensive line class. I think that there are other premier positions um, and, that you need. And I think that if if you lose Stafford, your season is toast anyway. <laughs> like you're you're predicated on a healthy Matthew Stafford uh, still, regardless of how your team is built. Um, so, I, you know, you want a good backup. I would, I would love to see this team finally solidify its backup quarterback position into a player who, um, you don't have to, or are feel like you need to schematically hide whatever Mike LaFleur did with Carson Wentz, uh, in terms of talking through that game plan was the opposite of hide the quarterback run, run pass. That was more like battering Ram Carson Wentz. We're going to go for it on every freaking fourth down, kick the door down Kool-Aid man style. Like that was the game plan for, with Carson Wentz. Um, so if you have that, <laughs> that's fine. You could probably, you'll probably win a couple of games. That's really the ceiling for a great backup quarterback is to win a couple of games to give your quarterback, your starter time to recover in a desperate situation in a worst case scenario, again, in an outlier scenario, although it has happened somewhat frequently um, with Matthew Stafford the last couple of years. So you really, if you're the Rams need to solidify that position that was why they drafted Stetson Bennett again, specifically to be the backup for a long time. Um, so I think I can understand why mock drafters are projecting this because it's like, hey, that's a two for one. You have your guy of the future. If you pick him in the first round, you probably you might have your guy of the future. And then also in a pinch, you can have a backup. So I understand the, the logic there. Um, if it were me, I would wait um, and, and I, I would still I think I would still draft in this class, but I think I would wait. A little bit, um, but nobody listens to me, so we'll kind of we'll kind of see what happens. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations, Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Okay, so also got a lot of questions about uh, my takeaways on the Chris Shula press conference, on the Chris Shula hire. Obviously, he's the Rams' new defensive coordinator. He was on Sean McVay's staff since 2017 in various defensive assistant roles. He's coached linebackers. Um, he's coached safeties. He's coached the secondary overall. Um, he's done some pass rush coordinator stuff. Um, and we know he's very close friends with Sean has been for like 20 years. They were teammates together at Miami of Ohio. Um, Shula was in consideration for the Miami dolphins job. He went, he said, uh, today, this is Tuesday. 
he said he, he actually went down there and did interview with the Dolphins, um, but the Rams kind of came in with that that final job offer there later in the process. Brandon Staley was a candidate for this job. Aubrey Pleasant was a candidate for this job. They interviewed a couple of other people around the league as well. Um, but this was an interesting hire because Sean knows he has to get this right. Um, I, I genuinely believe that he because Krishula is his friend, um, because he has been a longtime assistant on his staff, and because this is a really crucial, pivotal time for a defense that did a lot of growing up in 2023. This is a really pivotal time for that group in general, and and it is for this Rams team overall to take the next step forward in their um, sprint rebuild here. And he also knows he has to get it right because he hired his friend. So I think that that was there was a lot of thought that went into this. There was a lot of conversation that went into this. I heard around the league when I was in Mobile that it really was striking that how um, how long McVeigh was taking this time around in terms of making coordinator decisions. Um, that was from some external opinions from people around the league. Um, so the whole thing was, was interesting. And, um, you know, my, I was asked what my experience with, um, Shula is, I think two things stick out to me, um, in my mind, first of all, before I even go there, we don't know what his defensive identity is yet. And, and it's not a knock. He just hasn't had a chance to take over an entire unit before other than coaching at John Carroll. Um, which if if there's one thing about a Sean McVay team, he is going to have a John Carroll guy on his staff. He just is, right? So um, this time it's Chris Shula. And if Mike Harris stays around, he's also there. But um, Chris Shula doesn't have a lot of experience in that regard. Um, so his identity will emerge as time passes. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rush to like crown or um uh I'm not going to like give him a pass fail grade, like before he's even coached a couple of games and, and and further before he's even kind of gotten into the full bulk and meat of a season, um, because he just hasn't, he hasn't done it before. I think it was really clear what Raheem Morris wanted to do immediately. It was very, very clear based on the scheme change, what, and, and where, and why Sean McVay hired Brandon Staley, what those expectations and parameters were going to be immediately. But with Chris Shula, it's a little bit less clear other than a continuation of some of the things they already do. And then I'm curious about where he's going to put his identity, what types of things he's picked up that he's accumulated in terms of how he wants to be and who he wants to be as a coordinator as he's, that he's picked up over the years as a position coach, but also studying Wade Phillips, studying Brandon Staley, and studying Raheem Morris in-house all coordinators that he was an assistant coach for. So that's what I'm curious about. I also think that this move, it, it was still in the quote unquote family of defensive philosophy that Sean McVay really gravitated toward starting in 2020. To me, that is a sign that Sean McVay will still have a significant say over how this defense is run and what it looks like and the ways that it complements the offense that is something we talked about a lot at the beginning of this past season um, because of some of the, the changes that Raheem Morris was making into the 2023 season that he was not able to make in 2022 because of the offense. So I do think that that's still going to be a factor. The things I know about Chris Shula personally, um, he was the one who helped Sean identify Brandon Staley and that defense and was the one who helped him identify the right person to install that scheme, even though it was not going to be the exact version of that Vic Fangio scheme that Sean McVay was so mesmerized by. Um, it was going to be a version of it, but hey, you should meet this guy. I'll bring him in. Um, and here's, you know, here's why this should work. So the fact that he that Chris Shula was already in depth in the weeds of what was coming next in football at that time um, tells me a lot about what he's looking at in terms of the way that scheme and philosophy changes. I, I don't know how he's going to be as a defensive coordinator. I do know that he has been in a lead role in identifying and developing safeties and inside linebackers. The Rams have a pretty solid track record there. And especially in consideration of where in the draft they're getting those players. Um, and when I say identification, I'm saying like he's been in the in the weeds in the draft with these guys and also in the undrafted free agent process. So 
the continuity and the communication with the front office is really important. It's not someone new coming in and um, has to learn the language of this front office at this point is clicking on all cylinders because of how much continuity they have had over the years. Um, I asked Chris about this today during his press conference, and I thought it was a really good answer. It's basically like there's a definition of what it means to be a Ram. Chris Shula has helped, in fact, develop that definition. And so there's not really a huge drop off in communication on that front. Um, can they go out and play football? Can they help the offense? Can they win football games? Can they take the ball away? Can they um, prevent less explosive pass plays? Can they tackle better? All of those things are super, super important. We won't know until we see it in person. So um, I just think that that's kind of a fair way to uh, approach it. And I, I try to approach every new coach like that. But like I said, there's ironically a little bit less known about what kind of a defensive coordinator Chris Shula is going to be as opposed to Brandon Staley, who was hired for a very specific reason, and then Raheem Morris, who was hired for multiple very specific re reasons um, and had done had done the job before. Um, so there was sort of a precedent and a blueprint to look at. And that brings us to another coordinator question. Um, kicker and special teams questions abound. And I get it, guys. Oh, my goodness. Trust me on that. Like, it's interesting to think about, right? Because they did they did give up or, or leave 38 points on the board in terms of um, field goal misses and extra point misses this year. They allowed two punt returns for touchdowns. One lost them a game in overtime. Another almost cost them their season, um, but didn't. Uh, so I guess uh, the benefit of hindsight helps ease the blow on that. Um, tackling was terrible. Punt coverage was really inconsistent. The last two games, I think it improved a little bit, actually. Um, but especially, you know, minus the the uh, punt return, but I'm, I'm talking about the the last regular season game and then the, the playoff game, I think it improved. Um, they went through a few different long snappers. Um, they went through five different kickers, including Brett Maher twice. Um, you know, it, it just was not not good vibes all around. 32nd in DVOA the entire year, sixth worst special teams unit, I think, in, in the modern era of DVOA record history. Um, just just bad, bad all around. Um, small improvements by the end of the year, but for the majority of the year, just really was not improving the way the other phases of the ball were improving. Um, when you think about those points, though, I've, I've had this argument broached to me by a few different people. And, and I think there's validity to it. You know, did those points actually cost any games? I think you could argue like the Steelers game, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, um, there was a little bit of a, um, uh, that could, that, that cost them. I think more so than if we're thinking about costing wins, I think what we should be looking at is what is costing win probability. And I think that's actually where the Rams started looking at it a little bit too, because it wasn't so much at the fact that they were missing kicks is that they were also not going for it with any sort of um, identity on fourth down. You could tell there weren't a lot of calls on the call sheet um, for late down decision making. You could tell some of the sequencing was not reflective of a team that was going to go for it on fourth down in either medium go or high go scenarios. Um, you know, some of those really long kicks that got, that were set up in the middle of the season were reflective of the late, late down decision-making, not just the, whether or not to go on fourth down, but the way that third and fourth downs may or may not be sequenced together in a lot of cases are not sequenced together the way that other plays are sequenced together. Um, so I think really the point of all of this is to say like, it does sound like Chase Blackburn is sticking around. Um, normally, I don't know what his contract looks like. Normally, um, the league average of a contract is like two years for assistant coaches and some coordinators. I could see an argument for this job where the personnel, first of all, that he had to work with was far under league average because you're thinking, think about this, you're thinking about the level of talent that was diminished not only on the defensive side of the ball. So that's like most of your special teams unit as well, but it's also not even your defensive starters. It's the second string and the third string players, the second string and the third string on offense, which also was pretty thin and, un and underdeveloped at that point. 
So you're thinking about the personnel limitations that he has to work with. And what I don't think people really think about, and again, I'm not arguing like that, oh, everything, there's excuses or whatever. I'm just laying out kind of like things that I didn't think about that, that I think are hard for the public to think about because we don't see practices in full. And so it's hard to effectively communicate all of the circumstances, especially if they're not being communicated, um, because they sound like excuses, which I know this is going to sound like an excuse, but just something to think about and consider. Um, there are also things like time allotment limitations in practice. So um, a lot of times this skews very heavily toward offense and defense, especially on a offensive minded team. A lot of the offense is a lot of the time periods that you're spending on task are going to skew on offense instead of special teams. Um, your defense also is starting from basically scratch at a lot of positions. And so you have to, by nature of the development required, you have to spend significant portions of practice focused on defensive drills, position drills, installations, all of those things. And so by sheer limitations of how much you're allowed to practice every day, you're like literally running out of time to practice special teams. You have to a lot for it and account for it, obviously, but you also have other things that are hugely necessary and important, getting this offense back off the ground, developing second and third string players on offense, teaching your defense how to run drills for the first time. Like a lot of those things you can't do at the same time as a special teams install or a punt coverage drill because it's the same players who are they can't be in two places at one time. So you have to allot your time differently. And I think that you saw that catching up to them a, a little bit. Um, I'm not saying that they they were completely incorrect in their planning. I just think it was a, sort of part of what this that year was going to be. Like part of the necessity of having to overhaul so much two-thirds of the roster was you are not going to the the time allotment that normally works just fine for you because you have more veteran players on the special teams units and they know what they're supposed to be doing. They have to take all of that time and, and allot it toward like getting their defense off the ground and understanding what their scheme is going to be and, 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 uh, repping drills and developing players. And like I said, you just can't split people into two places at once. And there's limits on how much you can practice in general. And there's limits on, what type of tackling you can do. And there's limits on the energy output you're allowed to spend at practice. And uh, again, all of it sounds like excuses. It's not, it's just me trying to explain a little bit of why, of what that conversation might have looked like when they're talking about the overall job that Chase Blackburn did. And I think being a little bit fair to some of the parameters and the restrictions and the limitations that um, you just sort of have to take if you're going to be on one of the two phases that completely got overhauled by this front office um, in, in 2023. So that said, all of that being said, to me, this is absolutely going to be a prove it year. You've had a year of this. You understand what went wrong. You understand what you need to fix, even down to the time allotment. You understand how you can, um, you know, maybe more efficiently get that work in while still being under the rules of the collective bargaining agreement, you have, you, you know, what didn't work and now you have to fix it. Right. And you have a year. So to me, this seems like a bit of a prove it year. First and foremost, they need to figure out their punt hold snap unit. Um, they need to get Alex Ward back. He's been seeing a specialist with a neck issue. Um, they need to, uh, continue to develop Ethan Evans, the punter. They need to figure out a kicker. Uh, it is inexcusable to me to go the entire year calendar year, not just season, but calendar year without knowing who your kicker is going to be have to really focus on that. Um, so yeah, kind of a prove it year, I think for, for Chase Blackburn and company and Chase Blackburn will need to staff a new assistant because Jeremy Springer, who was, um, the former, uh, assistant it, two years ago, <laughs> and then was the guy they kept because he has a lot of, showed a lot of promise was the guy they kept over on the staff. Um, under Chase Blackburn is now the New England Patriots special teams coordinator. Um, so that spot needs to be filled as of this recording, still waiting on fills on inside linebackers, coach, quarterbacks, coach. There's a question um, about Giff Smith. Uh, NFL Network reported that he's going to be the new defensive line coach. 
Um, today, Tuesday, Krishula came out and said they're still working through that process. Now, that does not mean that he's not going to be this, the new defensive line coach. I'm just It just means that they're working through the process, and that is what the official comment from the team is. Um, and uh, in poking around kind of on that, it's just not uh, – things have not been officialized yet. They are very much still working through that process. So I wouldn't panic about that, anybody. I just – it's just some things just take a minute. Um, and I know that there was some panic every year. I do see panic about this wave of coaches that leave the Sean McVay staff. Um, this time, I think there was a little angst because this was Raheem Morris who got the head coaching job in Atlanta. He takes Zach Robinson with him. The Rams were ready and preparing for Zach Robinson to get a coordinator job last year. So this was not a surprise. Um, he almost got the Chargers job, except Kellen Moore kind of swooped in at the last minute and got that job instead. Um, and so Zach Robinson, it was it was pretty much a given that if Raheem Morris was going to get a job, Zach Robinson was going to go with him. They had a, have a great relationship. A lot of coaches want wanted to go coach for for Raheem Morris or yeah, work for Raheem Morris and coach with him. Um, the Rams knew this. Th this was a part of their pitch. <laughs> this was about, unless Sneed came out and say that said this. Like they know who he wants to hire on his staff. Um, they were pushing for this. They were pushing for Raheem Morris to get a job, and so they knew that several of their own coaches would leave with him. Um, I, I want to re remind you guys that like every head coaching candidate does not matter who they are, whether it's their first foray into the job market or their fifteenth. Um, they have a full staff. They have to present a staff list to show other teams. Ownership needs to know not just who they're hiring as a head coach, but who the most likely, not, not that it's a given, but who the most likely hire is for the OC and the DC and the quality control assistant and the wide receivers, you know, all of these different type, all of these many different jobs. And so the Rams would also have known these things. And so they would have been prepared. And so Sean McVay would have started to make get his own lists and brush the dust off them from last year and and um, start to run through his own lists and have his people pull different names for him and have his people make different suggestions for him over the what ifs on the Morris staff, right? Um, Sean McVay is very aware of all of this and knows this. And you can see proof and how comfortable he is with it because you see how he hires most of his coordinators. He knows he can only keep his people if he promotes them internally, but he rarely does. Chris Shula is the first internal promotion to coordinator ever since Sean McVay has been a head coach. And so he knows all of this and he knows he will lose people if he does that, but he still does it that way, which shows his priority and also shows his comfort level with his contingency plan. I'm not saying the angst isn't deserved or fair. I'm just saying with this guy, there's always a plan. Uh, sometimes the plan is an epic and spectacular failure, but there is always a plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I would say like, what is it, seven years? I'd say like six out of the seven years, it's worked out, right? So it's. I think it'll be fine. Um, but again, that's just... Uh, that's just me getting a little slap happy near the end of this solo recording. And I think you guys can hear my voice even starting to go too. So Rich Hammond, damn you, I need you. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, and last but not least, I do want to direct you to my explainer story. Um, very simple story uh, assigned by The Athletic over on The Athletic that just sort of runs through some of the Rams free agents, um, takes through some of their situation, a little clarity on a couple contracts. Um, good dialogue as usual going on in the comments section. Um, I really appreciate you guys. Um, and finally, 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 I have no insight whatsoever into anything about uniforms. You guys have my full permission because he's not on social anymore to email Rich Hammond. Um, I think it is rhammond at theathletic.com. Tell him I sent you, uh, full permission to ask him anything you want to ask him about the uniforms and also tell him you miss hearing him on 11 personnel. I personally am giving him a little bit of a break. He deserves it. He's working hard over there on the NHL vertical. Um, great, great dude. He's just as going to know more about this uniform thing than I, and uh, than I do. Um, I just, it's, you know, I came in late to the game. He was already all over this beat when I joined the beat four years ago. Um, he's still all over it. So you guys direct all questions that way. I'm sure he will very happily 
give you the advanced um, pantalytics on the uniform situation. Guys, you did it. (laughs) You made it. As I sat here and cringed and clenched at the sound of my own voice, you have made it through this solo episode, this mailbag episode of 11 Personnel. We all got a little slap happy together. Uh, You might not have, but me and the voices in my head did. (laughs) So I hope you guys are having a great February so far. It is pouring rain. It has been for days um, over my way in Los Angeles. I hope you all are staying safe. Um, I hope you all are taking great care of yourselves. I hope you all are taking care of each other. I hope you're staying caffeinated and hydrated, and I'll catch you next time. Hey, football fans, this is Diana Rossini from The Athletic. Get the top stories in pro football snapped directly to your inbox with our latest NFL newsletter, Scoop City. Jacob Robinson and I will bring you the daily scoop of top NFL articles, posts, and podcasts every Monday to Friday. Sign up for free now at theathletic.com backslash scoop.